Whenever you continue in our series through the book of Exodus, please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7, and we will read from Exodus 7, 14 through to 8, 19. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus 7, and I will begin reading at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand a staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians died. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water in the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you, and on your people, and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses 
and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frog shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is God's word. Let's pray together for his help as we study it more closely. Lord, we know that you desire to make yourself known. This is the purpose of your acts in history and the inspiration of the scripture. We pray then that you will make yourself known to us tonight through this section of scripture more thoroughly, more profoundly than we know you now, that we might worship you more devotedly, and that those who are outside of Christ might run to him for refuge. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Tonight we begin examining the Ten Plagues narrative, and to be honest, I've struggled with how to approach this section, preaching this section. That is to say, I've not been sure of exactly the best way to divide it up. There's too much richness in the narrative to take it all as one and just preach only one sermon on the ten plagues. But at the same time, it doesn't seem to me to divide up neatly into ten different sermons the way that, say, for example, the Ten Commandments did when I preached through that. In the end, I've decided to break it up into at least four sermons. And I say at least because I may take an excursus here or there if I feel that that is important and uh, would be helpful to digress from the main uh, train of thought and progression through the Ten Plagues narrative. But I say at least four, because what I'm planning at the moment is to take the first nine plagues in three sermons, three at a time, and then spend a sermon on the last one before we transition to the actual Exodus narrative. And this breakdown of the first nine plagues into three groupings of three is somewhat arbitrary, to be honest, as there are no extremely obvious delineations between plagues three and four, or between plagues six and seven. However, scholars have noted that there actually are clearly three groupings. So let me show you a couple of patterns briefly before we get into the meat of our study tonight. First, there is the pattern of 
the circumstances of Moses and Aaron's approach to Pharaoh. They approach in the morning on the first, fourth, and seventh legs. Then they approach Pharaoh and Pharaoh's courts in the second, fifth, and eighth legs. And then no circumstances are given in the third, sixth, and ninth legs. So what we're left with in terms of a pattern of the details that are given about their approach to Pharaoh is morning, Pharaoh's court, no circumstances given. Morning, Pharaoh's court, no circumstances given. Morning, Pharaoh's court, no circumstances given. And so you can see there three groupings of three. And another pattern is this. The first three plagues involve Aaron's staff. The next three plagues, four, five, and six, involve no staff. And seven, eight, and nine involve either Moses' staff or Moses' hands. And so again, three distinct groupings of three for whatever reason. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure what to make of those details or why they're grouped so. At this point, perhaps I will learn as I continue to study through this section in preparation to preach. But for whatever reason, it does seem that there, there are three distinct groupings. So I'm just going to adopt that. It seems to be the authorial intent that we understand there to be three groupings of three prior to the tenth consummate plague. So I'm going to break it up that way. And tonight, then, we are examining the first three plagues. And as we make our way through all ten plagues, I hope to be like something of a tour guide, pointing out what we should notice along the way. Sometimes details that I might point out as we go along the way may overlap with other sections and not be distinctive to the group of three that we are studying on a given night. But at least breaking it down this way will help us to spread out our learning over at least a few weeks and help us steer clear of the information overload that we would inevitably have if we tried to take all 10 plagues at once and consider every relevant detail to the 10 plagues narrative in one sermon. So here it goes. Tonight, the first three plagues. And as a tour guide, I'd like to point out to you three things tonight. First, a bit of an excursus again, some difficulties in making coherent sense of the events described. Then second and third, which would be sort of the meat of our study, the development of God's self-disclosure that occurs by means of the first three plagues and the scripture pertaining to the first three plagues. And then Pharaoh and his court's limited recognition of Yahweh. So difficulties in making coherent sense of the events described, the development of God's self-disclosure, and Pharaoh and his court's limited recognition of Yahweh. That's what we're doing today. So let's jump right in with the first point, which, as I say, is something of an excursus before we get to our main study. Here it is. Some difficulties in making coherent sense of the events described. I will never forget sitting in a hot tub talking to um, a unbelieving friend of mine who was having a really hard time with the truthfulness of the Bible. And he was not a believer, so he was frankly somewhat irreverent and blasphemous in terms of his criticism and mockery of 
the scriptures. But one of the things he zeroed in on was the ten plagues narrative. And as we go through, we're going to see that there are some difficulties at face value with just understanding just the coherence of what is described. Even if you grant a supernatural world, even if you grant that we don't have to follow the natural and normal laws of nature, there still is some difficulty in the Ten Plagues narrative with just making coherent sense of what is presented. So I'm going to probably make this excursus probably in each of the sermons over the next few weeks. But tonight I'm going to start with what we see only in the first couple plagues. So there are really two difficulties tonight. First, it says all the water in the land of Egypt was turned to blood. All of it. And in case we thought that that was an exaggeration and it was a hyperbole and it was really just most of the water, verse 19 of chapter 7 is explicit. I read it, but let me draw your attention to it again. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So even the personal vessels with water already drawn from the Nile were turned to blood. And all other waterways and standing bodies of water were turned to blood. Here's the difficulty. Verse 22 of chapter 7 says, The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. You see the problem? If all the water was already blood, then what water did the magicians turn into blood? Right? You see that even if you grant, okay, supernaturalism is at play. What does this even mean? It doesn't even seem to be coherent. There are a few instances like this as we make our way through the template. So instead of just telling you at face value to take it on faith, which you should do, I will also at the same time endeavor to give some rational explanation of how we might understand what is being said here. Most commentators suggest with reference to this particular issue that the magicians found some water somewhere that hadn't been turned into blood and then they turned that water into blood. But personally, I find that unconvincing. I think that verse 19 is far too explicit about the extent and the scope of the plague to allow for that. We would have to say that, um, in order to adopt that view, we'd have to say that, okay, well, in vessels of wood and stone, yes, all that was turned into blood, but what about vessels of metal? It doesn't say anything about that. But I, I think that that would be to misunderstand the intent of uh, verse 19 of chapter 7. I think that verse 19 is intended to tell us comprehensively all the water, and not only the, the standing bodies of water, not only the flowing rivers of water, but even everything that had already been drawn and was in vessels. I think that's the clear intent of verse 19. So I don't think we can say that there was water that didn't get turned to blood. So I personally find the explanation that they found some somewhere and turned that into blood unconvincing. Here's a suggestion that seems much more plausible to me. Remember that our chapter and verse delineations are not 
inspired. They were added much later. In chapter 725, it says that seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the nine. Now, seven days of no water would be totally catastrophic to Egypt. Utterly catastrophic to Egypt. Even in our modern society, imagine if Barbados Water Authority could pump no water anywhere in the island for seven full days. Even for us, that would be absolutely catastrophic. And, and many people have uh, tanks, many people have uh, bottled water set aside for a hurricane, whatever, but seven full days would still be a very, very big problem, even now. In Egypt, they wouldn't have been even as prepared as we would be today in Barbados for a seven-day water shutoff. And since the plagues seem to generally increase in intensity from one to ten, it seems unlikely to me that we are to understand from verse 25 that the Nile was turned into blood and remained blood for seven days. Rather, I don't think that that's what 725 is saying. I think that 725 is giving us an idea of the time frame of actually the second plague. It's included in 725, but remember, as I said, the chapter and verse delineations are not inspired. How does chapter 8 and verse 1 start? Then the Lord said to Moses, when? After seven full days had passed, after the Lord had struck the Nile. So more likely to me than that the Nile became and remained blood for seven days is that all of the water turned to blood for a day or two at most, and perhaps even less time than that, perhaps we're even talking about hours. How long would it take a fish to die while swimming in blood? I am not a biologist, I didn't even bother to try to Google it, but I'm just gonna go ahead and say, if you had a bucket full of blood and you went fishing, and you take the fish off the hook and throw it in your bucket of blood. I think you'll be dead by the time you get home. Almost for sure. I, in fact, you might be dead within minutes. I don't know. And how long would it take for people to start worrying about a clean water supply? As you see that they were in 724. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. For they could not drink of the water of the Nile. Well, again, not very long. If all the water in Barbados became blood, the sea, all the water in the Barbados Water Authority reservoirs, you turn on the tap and out comes blood. All the bottled water that you set aside for hurricanes is blood. What would happen? Panic. Okay? So again, not very long. So all that is required by the text is that the Nile became blood long enough for fish to die and for people to panic. That's all that's required by the text, which I think would not be very long, in fact. So it seems to me then that the water likely became blood for only a day or two tops, during which time um, the fish died, but everybody else could survive the water shut up even for 24 hours. But perhaps the water became blood even for as little as a few hours. If it is the case 
that denial became blood for a day or two tops, maybe even less. Then actually there was plenty of time in this seven day window before the second plague for all the water to return to its normal state and then for the magicians of Egypt to repeat the plague within this seven day time frame. To me, that's the most plausible resolution to this difficulty. Then we read, and after seven full days elapsed, then the Lord said to Moses, and on we go to the second plague. Now the problem is the same with the frogs. Chapter 8.3 tells us that the Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Again, this is comprehensive. The frogs are everywhere. If you had to choose where you would most prefer not to have frogs, would you say your bed and your ovens and your kneading bowls? Because I would. The floors? Okay. Well, fine. If it has to be that way, so be it. But preferably not in my bed and not in my dishes and my cooking implements. Right? Let me at least eat and sleep without frogs getting in the way. So I think that the mention of these things is indicating that the frogs were everywhere. Even in kitchen items that would have been kept as clean and inaccessible to pests and vermin and uh, amphibious creatures coming out of the Nile as possible. However, this time, we read that the magicians did the same by their secret arts, but we don't have the luxury, in this case, of suggesting that the plague was performed first by Moses and Aaron, and then the magicians of Egypt consecutively. Chapter 8, 13 and 14 says, The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. This is a one-time event. It's not as if the frogs died out twice, and they gathered them in heaps twice, and the land stank twice. The text doesn't allow for that. So here, I would be happy to just concede that I don't know exactly how it was that the magicians did the same by their secret arts. Most likely, they were able somehow to clear a certain area of frogs and then cause the frogs to reinfest the area. Though to me, if I was called to witness such a feat, I wouldn't be all that impressed, to be honest with you. In a time of swarming frogs, if someone cleared a room or a house full of frogs and said, look, I can make them reappear again. So I don't know how the magicians established the conditions sufficient enough to convince Pharaoh and whoever else that they had actually duplicated the plague by their own demonic powers. But the scripture tells us that they did duplicate the plague. And I, for one, am willing to just accept that on this one. It's not, it's not theoretically impossible the way it was with the water. If there were already, say, 100,000 frogs, it's not theoretically impossible that the magicians made 100,000 more come. Whereas it would actually be impossible if all the water was already blood to make it into blood. Mm -hmm. Right? So on this one, I don't have a rational problem just 
accepting it on face value, though it's a bit hard to understand how it is that you prove that you duplicated it. I'm happy to just accept that. There's nothing fundamentally unbelievable about that. So that's an excursus, but I think a helpful and an important one as a thinking person, whether a believer or an unbeliever, may wonder about the coherence of this narrative, even if they grant the possibility of the supernatural. And as I said, we'll likely have another excursus next Sunday night as there are further difficulties like this as we make our way through the narrative. But for now, let's move on to our main study tonight. And the next thing that I, as our tour guide, would like to point out is this. The way that our text develops God's gradual self-disclosure. The overarching purpose of the plagues and the whole Exodus narrative is, as Tony Marita puts it, God's passion to be known and worshipped. This is why God sent the plagues and why God ultimately brought his people uh, out of the land of Egypt. In the following text, we see God's stated purpose in doing all the plagues. And I'm going to go through these quick. If you've got quick fingers, you can turn with me. Otherwise, listen. Exodus 7, 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 8, 10. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Exodus 8, 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Exodus 9, 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And 16 of the same chapter. For this purpose I have raised you up to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And verse 29 of chapter 9. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10 and verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 11 and verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Marita helpfully points out in his commentary that the phrase, I am Yahweh, extends beyond the plagues in Exodus as well. The phrase refers in chapter 14 and verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 8 of chapter 14. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued... Uh, oops, I got the wrong reference here. Let me skip that one. 16 and verse 12. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, and Exodus 29, 
and verse 46, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. So you can see that it's very, very clear here, as Marita says, that the, the main point of all these plagues and the whole Exodus narrative is that they may know, that you may know, that the Egyptians may know, that the Israelites may know, that people who read this record that God inspired may know that Yahweh, He is God, that the earth is His, that there is no one like Him, etc. God's passion to be known and worshipped. We see here, Marita says, God's great purpose, the glory of His great name. This is the overarching purpose, and God reveals himself gradually both to the Israelites and to the Egyptians as this passage unfolds. In our text tonight, we see God moving forward his self-disclosure, in other words, disclosing more and more of who he is in primarily the following way. In our text tonight, the first three plagues, God is revealing himself as superior the gods of Egypt. We saw this hinted at already in the prologue where Aaron's staff swallows up the staffs of the sorcerers. And as I said, that's really the Ten Plagues uh, narrative in a microcosm. That's what's going to keep happening. It's happening now in more detail. Much later in biblical history, David reflects on the Exodus and says in prayer to God, Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. So we are to understand the Exodus narrative in light of that text in 2 Samuel 7.23 as God overcoming Egypt and its gods. Where in the narrative do we see Egypt's gods appear? Where in the book of Exodus do we see Egypt's gods appear? Two places. First, in the duplication of the staff turning into a snake, which happened in the prologue, which we studied last week, and in the duplication of the first two plagues. All of that, the duplication is the first way, the first place that we see Egypt's gods. As we saw last week, these were real miracles done by evil demonic powers. In other words, the gods of Egypt. Yet, Aaron's staff swallowed up the sorcerer's steps, demonstrating Yahweh's superiority. And in our text tonight, the gods of Egypt have to drop out of the race, so to speak, after the first two laps. The first two signs they can keep up with and duplicate, but after that, they can't do it. God is manifesting himself further, increasing the intensity of his self-disclosure as he who is superior to the gods of Egypt. The second place that we see the gods of Egypt appear in the text of Exodus is in the background information which would have been known to the Egyptians and to the Israelites who had been enslaved in Egypt for so long. 
the nature of the plagues is a direct assault on the Egyptian deities. In our passage tonight, God demonstrates power over the Nile and power over frogs. The ancient Egyptians, as well as the ancient Israelites, would have known that the Nile and the frog are both closely connected to Egypt's deities. There were gods connected to the Nile. And in fact, Douglas Stewart says, the Egyptians understood the Nile itself to be a god. And according to John Curran, one of the major goddesses of Egypt was Heket, who is depicted as a human female with a frog's head. And Heket had the responsibility of controlling the multiplication of frogs in ancient Egypt by protecting the frog-eating crocodiles. In view of these connections between the Nile and the frogs and the gods of Egypt, no one could miss the point. Again, Kurd says, Yahweh overwhelms Heket and multiplies the frogs that she is so desperately trying to control the population of. And we can add that Yahweh overwhelms the Nile God. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is therefore superior to the gods of Egypt. We see in the third plague with the gnats uh, the uh, inability to reproduce this. Right? And so the gods of Egypt are being overcome and eventually can't keep up. This is what's happening. As we go on, I'm not going to name them all each week, but apparently most, if not all, of the plagues actually correspond to well-known Egyptian gods. And so this is not um, just some random display of power, but this is God saying, hey, that God over there that controls the Nile, let me show my dominance over him. Hey, that uh, bizarre-looking goddess, Heket, over there, let me show my superiority over her. And on and on. I'm not going to name them all each week, but this is what's happening in the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Israelites would have known. So this is the primary way in which we're seeing God's self-disclosure move forward in these first three plagues. We come now to our last point, which is this. The last thing I want to point out to you as our tour guide that we should observe. Pharaoh and his court are starting in a limited way to recognize Yahweh. Pharaoh and his court are starting in a limited way to recognize Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Remember, his capital L-O-R-D is really Yahweh or Jehovah. Right? It's put that way in our English Bibles by tradition, but really that's what it signifies. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Chapter 5, verse 2. Now listen in chapter 8 and verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and my people. 
and I will let the people go to sacrifice the Yahweh. So you see, before this whole thing started, Pharaoh's like, I don't know Yahweh. Who's Yahweh? But now he's saying to Moses, plead with Yahweh to take away these frogs. Pharaoh is starting to recognize that there is a God in Israel. He's starting to recognize at some level the legitimacy of Yahweh, that he is a real God and that he has some real power, that it's him who has caused these frogs. We see also the sorcerers in 819 saying to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They can't reproduce this sign of the gnats. And so they recognize this is not some localized deity who rules, who has some sort of parochial authority and territory, like the god of the Nile or the god of the frogs or whatever, but that there is something going on that is bigger than these sort of parochial localized deities. They're recognizing Yahweh is something. He's doing something that we can't do by the power of our pantheon of gods. This is the finger of God. I want you to notice that. And I want to make an application from that as we press towards the conclusion. It is possible to actually know who is the true God. It is possible to actually recognize the legitimacy of Yahweh and still drown in the Red Sea. It is possible to have some knowledge that the God whom the Christians worship is the true God. It is possible to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come down from heaven to seek and to save the lost. As we read this morning from Matthew chapter 1, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It is possible to know that that's true and still drown in the Red Sea. It is possible to be like Pharaoh who knows that God did this, Yahweh did this. It is possible to know that he is the one that is above your gods. And yet still drown in the Red Sea. It is possible to know that Yahweh is more powerful than that to which you give your loyalty. That which you bow down before, that which you worship. As the sorcerers knew, this is the finger of a God greater than our gods. And yet they continue to practice sorcery. We are not reading about Pharaoh's conversion. We are not reading about the conversion of the sorcerers from black magic to the worship of the true and living God. Though we are reading of an intellectual grasp of the truth. We are reading about an experiential confrontation with the true God. 
Perhaps they even had some feelings of contrition. As Pharaoh here says, perhaps in the heat of the moment, plead with Yahweh to get rid of these frogs, and then, yes, yes, I will let the people go. Perhaps in that moment, he felt like what he was doing is wrong, and he knew that he should do what's right. Perhaps the sorcerers felt for a moment the fear of God as they realized that this God is greater than their demon gods. Perhaps for a moment, they wondered whether they should switch allegiances. In the end, it seems that none of them did. Certainly Pharaoh did it. Pharaoh pursued the Israelites hotly into the Red Sea where the waters came down and crashed over him and drowned him and his whole army. It is therefore possible to know that Yahweh is a great God. It is possible to know that he's real, that he's superior. It's possible to know that deliverance can only come in him and through him. As Pharaoh realized here that if anyone's going to get rid of the problem that he had, which for him was the frogs, it would be Yahweh. It's possible to know all these things and still perish in your sin without ever actually coming to be a devotee, a follower, a disciple, a believer. It's possible. Some people know the truth. My dad told me that when he was an unbeliever, he used to live a very ungodly lifestyle. But he used to get so incensed whenever his friends or people that he would run into at the bar or whatever would start mocking Christianity. <laughs> he, said, he used to get angry and he would, he would debate with them and he would, he would fight them because he knew that it was true and it just bothered him. <laughs> there are people in this world that know that it's real, that know that it's true, and yet they won't bend the knee. And yet they won't come in faith, in humility, in dependent trust to Christ Jesus and say, as the man did, who beat his breast and would not even lift his eyes to heaven. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Pharaoh never got there. The sorcerers never got there. There are people in Barbados who sit in churches regularly who know the truth. They know that our God is a glorious God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They know that God rules over this world and is going to bring everything to its intended end. They know that Jesus is one day going to return and raise his people from the grave and be with them forever. They know that before um, even that, that Jesus descended from heaven, that he lived a righteous life, that he died a sin-bearing death. They know that he rose. They believe that he rose. They believe that he ascended. Listen, even the demons believe and shudder. Even sorcerers believe. 
even ungodly pharaohs believe. There are people who believe these things and still perish. People who know something of the truth and still perish. There are those who sit in church and perhaps feel in the moment bad about their sin. Like it seems here for a moment at least, Pharaoh felt bad about not letting the Israelites go. In this moment, when his palace was swarmed by the frogs, and we laugh about it, we say, oh, it's funny, it's just a bunch of frogs, but imagine frogs everywhere. Frogs, as I understand it, are not the cleanest of creatures. Perhaps they carry some, I don't know, salmonella or something? I don't know. I would imagine it's not totally sanitary to have like thousands of frogs in your house. I used to go catch all kinds of reptiles and amphibians when I was a kid and go in the field, catch snakes, catch frogs, catch salamanders. I'd, I'd bring them home and I'd put them in a garbage can, a big garbage can that my dad had bought for me just for this purpose. And it was my dedicated can to like make a habitat. Listen, that thing always smelled. <laughs> always. No matter whether snakes were in there, frogs were in there, salamanders were in there. This was, this was not pleasant, right? We laugh about it, it's funny, but if you actually think about it, it wouldn't be that nice to have all these frogs. So here's Pharaoh in the moment, desperate to get rid of these frogs. And he's, he's having this thought process. Okay, plead to Yahweh, Yahweh can deliver. And I feel some kind of compulsion to let Yahweh's people go. Perhaps he feels bad, perhaps it's just part of the bargain old calculated mathematical bargain. We don't know. We're not told that. But perhaps he feels bad. Listen, there are people who come to church and make bargains, whether they're cold mathematical bargains or whether they are bargains that involve some feeling. God, if you will just whatever, then I will change. So on and so forth. There are people who do what Pharaoh does here. They, they get caught up in a moment, they're desperate to be free from something, to have a situation change, and they make bargains with God because they know that God has the power to deliver them, and they feel like if God does that, then they will do Listen, there are people who know something of the truth of God, of Yahweh. They have some comprehension of who He is, some sense of His legitimacy. Not everyone is on one end of the spectrum or the other. Not everyone is an unbeliever, utterly suppressing the truth and unrighteous, professing total atheism, skeptical of the scriptures, so on and so forth, or full-on, born-again, regenerate believer, doing their personal devotions every day, walking with the Lord, member of the gospel belief. It is not that simple. There are people along the spectrum. And what we see here in this passage is men on the spectrum. Pharaoh finally acknowledging the Lord when before he hasn't acknowledged the Lord. The sorcerers acknowledging the Lord. Even the superiority of the Lord over their own gods. It is possible to know certain things about God, believe certain things about God, and be damned. Here's the application. We 
need more than an introductory acquaintance with Yahweh. We need to have personal dealings with him. If I were to call the name of a famous person, you might say, oh yeah, I know him. Uh, but do you know him? Does he know you? <laughs> or do you just know of him? If I call God's name, you might say, ah, I know him. But do you know him? Does he know you? Or do you have a mere introductory acquaintance? You need to have personal dealings with God in and through the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God by faith in Him. He is able to save by the, uh, to the uttermost those who draw near to God by faith in Him. He is not going to say to the uttermost those who recognize that he's real, merely. He's not going to say to the uttermost those who have some sort of intellectual comprehension that God is mighty to save. He is not going to say to the uttermost sorcerers who remain devoted to false gods, even though they recognize the superiority of God over he is not going to say to the uttermost pharaohs who won't humble themselves and get off their throne and beat their breast and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He is able to save to the uttermost, and he will save to the uttermost all, but only those who draw near to God by faith in him. We need more than an introductory acquaintance with Yahweh. And that's all that Pharaoh had and all these sorcerers had. So as we learn here, see who God is, get the doctrine right by all means, but draw near to God by faith in Jesus Christ. See him and draw near to him and trusting. Let's sing in response, Behold Our God, number 126 in Hymns of Grace.